Amen. Where's Mike? 16 um counts. That was pretty impressive. That's what it said at the end. I thought that was really cute. Good morning, New Creation. It's so good to be with you guys. I, uh, I'm amazed every time I come here to see how the church is developing and growing, and it's intense to be this high up. This is new. I suppose it's so that you can all see me. All right. I, uh, like Paul said, I've been in Switzerland for almost a year. Uh, July last year, my wife and I and the three kids, we moved to her hometown of Montreux, Switzerland. Um, and it's been, it's been good. It's been a good experience. It's been tough. The culture is difficult. The weather sucks. Uh, nine months of winter, and as soon as it gets warm, I've got to come here. If Wes were here, <laughs> have a chat. But uh, in my experience of Switzerland, uh, in my experience of living there, I have to get used to celebrating Christmas in the winter. So I thought I would teach you guys what that's like by bringing Christmas to you today. The 25th of June, which means we're six months away from Christmas past and Christmas future. So this is the equivalent of what it's like to have to sell. Imagine Christmas like this. In the cold, a short little school holiday. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's coming down. <laughs> um, like this isn't, this isn't what Christmas is about, right? So you're going to see a little bit of what it's like Christmas in winter. Now... There is a guy in England who literally celebrates Christmas every day. Every day of his life, he celebrates Christmas, and eventually it got to such a point that in 2016, his daughter said to him, Dad, you need to stop. Eating mince pies every day is not healthy. It's not good for your budget. It's not good for your belly. And so she convinced him eventually to stop celebrating Christmas in 2016, and that lasted two weeks. He took down all his decorations, and two weeks later, he just said life was drab and meaningless. There was no point to his life, and so on the 6th of January, he put his decorations back up. I am not like Andy Parks of England. I know you guys know that I love Christmas, but I'm not like this guy. I love Christmas because, before you switch off, because it sounds nuts, Christmas is the celebration of Jesus breaking into this world. Jesus is the incredible, impossible miracle of the eternal breaking into the temporal, the infinite coming to the finite. It is literally the miracle that was predicted in the first book of the Old Testament and waited for the whole rest of the Old Testament. And so I agree that if your life has never had a Christmas experience, if your life has never had the breaking through, the impossible miracle of Jesus coming into your world and doing the impossible of forgiving your unforgivable sins, of pardoning you in a way that you don't deserve. If you've never had that Jesus breaking through, if you've never had that Christmas experience, then, you know, 
I agree that your life might also seem as drab and as pointless as a slightly unstable English dude might have said his life was too. So this morning, I want us to look at the story of the wise men. Okay, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the story of the wise men, but we're not going to just look at that story. What we're going to do is we're going to do a little practice in, what, in, in, in a new technique of reading the Bible or a different technique of reading the Bible. Okay? We're going to look at the story and we're going to try and look for themes in the story. The Bible is an incredible book. I love the Bible. Who loves the Bible? Come on. Right? The Bible is an incredible book written by many authors over many different years, but actually one author, one story. And the Holy Spirit has been trying to tell us stuff ever since the beginning of creation, and we have so stubbornly refused to hear it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this one story and try and see what the Holy Spirit has been trying to tell us. Can we do that? Are you guys okay, even if it's a Christmas story? Okay. The visit to the wise men. Let's read. If you have your Bibles, that would be great as well. Otherwise, this is in the ESV. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. You're right. We know that's not true. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that your word is alive and it's powerful and it always achieves what it was set out to achieve. And this morning we want to submit to your word. We want to use this revelation of you to discover you, to discover you for our 
own lives, to discover you for, for ourselves, so that we may grow in our hope and our understanding, so that we may grow closer to Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at themes. There are certain things that have happened in the story that have, that have been hinted at in the Old Testament, and then they're still being told to us today to guide us into our future, okay? So I want to look at three themes this morning. Those three themes are the coming of the king, the worship of the world, and the protection of the promise, okay? The coming of the king, the worship of the world, and the protection of the promise. So let's have a look at how these themes in that story have been told for centuries past and can help us to move into our future. Number one, the coming of the king. In Genesis 3 verse 15, if we go all the way back, looking at the coming of this king, the coming of the savior, we read this verse, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your heel. It's right there in the first book of the Bible, we already see this idea that there's someone that's going to come. See, this verse is actually called the Proto-Evangelium. It's a mouthful. The Proto-Evangelium, because it's the first time in the Bible that the gospel is prophesied. It's God saying that the serpent, who Jesus' disciples later on, they understood that the serpent represents Satan. The serpent will receive a fatal blow. He will bruise your head. That is a fatal blow. And Satan will bruise the offspring of Eve's heel. So that is not a fatal blow, but that is still signs of a battle, even though it seems to be pretty one-sided. Now, this is a prophecy that comes from God himself. This is God speaking. And in this prophecy, God says, he will bruise your head. That he is a representation of a person. A person is coming. The offspring of this woman, Eve, so someone is coming that's going to destroy evil. Something, someone is coming that's going to destroy all evil in the world. And so when God said that, all of creation pricked up their ears, opened their eyes, and was, they were all like, oh, who's coming? Where is he? Satan himself was like, okay, we're going to put an end to that idea. Everyone lifted their eyes and began to look for the signs of Christmas. Who is this Messiah going to be? Was it going to be Cain or Abel? She had her first offspring, Eve, and Satan put a stop to that immediately. Cain killed Abel and sin entered the world in a very gruesome way. But then Eve had a third son, Seth. Was he going to be the Messiah? Was he going to be the one to destroy evil? We don't know very much about Seth, so probably wasn't him. So what's happening with this prophecy? Because Eve, as far as we know, didn't have any other children. So Satan began to corrupt the world more and more, but 
it became clear that the prophecy was about her offspring, about her lineage, her heritage. So now evil had to work hard to make sure it didn't see the light of day. And corruption covered the earth. And God stepped in to protect and, and ensure his promise would come, come true. So he protected his people through Noah. Was Noah the fulfillment of this promise, of this prophecy? Well, no, because the prophecy is about the destruction of evil. Whereas Noah was the protection of the uncorrupted. It wasn't the destruction of evil, but the protection of the uncorrupted. So God renewed a new covenant with Noah. He said, I'm going to be committed to the good of those I've created. Yes, there is going to always be evil in the world, but I'm never ever going to use death of those people to deal with that corruption. That's no longer going to be how I deal with it. And so God, God introduces this idea of sin being dealt with by him. Because the easiest way to get rid of evil and sin in the world is what? Just get rid of people. You get rid of all people and sin and evil is gone. That's what Hollywood has been telling us for years. And God said to Noah, that's not what I'm going to do. And so we, are, we have, we have the, the route paved for us that the solution may be founded in God himself. So God develops the terms of a, of a relationship with people through Abraham. He calls Abraham to leave his hometown and gives him a promise of a child. The promised child is going to come. And Abraham waits for the promised child until he's 100 years old. 100 years old and his wife is 90. And then the child is born. Could this child be the fulfillment of the prophecy? The eradication of sin and finally blessing to all mankind? God renews this blessing with Abraham because Abraham refuses to put his faith in his own works but to keep his faith only in God. Is this a sign of things to come as well? Is God trying to teach us something? Abraham's child of promise is born, but ultimately he's not the Messiah. But God renews his promise with him, with Isaac, that all nations are going to be blessed through him. And so it continues with Jacob, who becomes Israel, and his 12 sons and the establishment of the people of God. And then God's people are oppressed terribly for hundreds of years and the situation begins to look really bad for God's people. But then a baby is born that gets the attention of the whole spiritual world. And so Pharaoh decrees that all babies should be murdered. Let's just put an end to this lineage once and for all so that the seed of Eve can be done with. But Moses' mom sees how significant this baby is and protects him. And God leads Moses to Pharaoh's daughter who sees the same thing and God's protection carries on. So is this Moses, that child of promise? Well, Moses doesn't hide the fact that he sins repeatedly. He is weak as a leader and as a follower. And so we begin to see these patterns in the Bible developing. A baby born in turmoil supernaturally protected from the destruction of the enemy and saving God's people from oppression. Is this a pattern of things that we can look forward to? 
God's people continue to develop and, and David is born, a man after God's own heart, a great king. Is he the Messiah? Well, no, again. He turns from obedience to God, um, to his own ways, and God has to discipline him. But David gets given another renewal of this promise. David is told that on his throne, his seed will reign forever. A royal son. But David himself, this king, this, this king full of promise, is imperfect. And so we get this hint that there's going to be a perfect king to come, but it's not David. And we can keep looking forward to it. Later, in the, as, as, as time goes on, God's people, they're corrupted terribly. They're so badly corrupted. They, they turn from God. As their hope in this promise over centuries and centuries starts to die out. They turn from waiting for this Messiah to trying to do things in their own strength, and only a small group of faithful people remain. All hope in the Savior is almost gone. And then one day, an angel appears to Mary and announces that she'll have a son. Mary has this miraculous son that finally fulfills the promise that all creation had been longing for. And Jesus promises to us that he'll come back. So the New Testament presents Jesus' life to us and presents the fact that Jesus promises he's going to come back. And here we are, sitting and waiting. And as we wait... We go through periods of difficulty and struggle. We go through times that are easy and times that are hard. And as we sit and we wait for the fulfillment of the promise that's been given to us, we struggle to stay faithful. And so many people give up on the hope that Jesus is coming back. Many people give up on the hope we're going to be saved. That the Christmas story is a reminder that we celebrate God's faithfulness in his promises. God is true to what he promised. God is going to send Jesus again. Jesus is going to come back. But what is Jesus going to find when he does? Think of the Jews and the promise that they were waiting for, the promise of the Messiah. Think of how they struggled to hold on to their hope. Imagine what they were feeling when life was going so bad and they were oppressed again and again. Think of how hard it was for them to hold on to the hope of this prophecy of the Messiah. It's so relatable. It's so much easier to take matters into our own hand, to just deal with the evil in this world and, and make the best of it for myself. It's so much easier than waiting for this idealistic promise to be fulfilled because it is taking long. I need reminding today that God's promises are true. I need reminding 
that God is faithful and that he will fulfill his promises to me. I need reminding of God's track record. I need to look back and see how faithful he was in the midst of despair so that I can grow in the expectations of the future. I need Christmas. Number two, the worship of the world. Genesis 12 says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see how the Magi come from the east? They come to worship this king, this promised Messiah. They weren't Jewish people coming to worship Jesus. So this blessing God establishes, this promise that God establishes with Abraham, he then establishes it with Isaac as well. And as we just saw, the people of God developed into a great nation and God begins to work with the Israelites. What's that about? He says, I'm going to bless all people in the world, all nations of the earth, and then he only works with the Israelites. What's going on here? Why is there this prophecy for the whole world, and then God only works with the Israelites in the Old Testament. Is God exclusive? This is a very difficult question to deal with because it's, it's pretty emotionally charged when you consider the idea that, that God chose only the, these people and everyone else he just doomed to judgment. That's a difficult idea to accept. But is that the God that the Old Testament presents to us? I don't think so. And I want to look at a few passages. Firstly, we have this verse here. And in this verse here, we can see God's desire that the whole earth be blessed. Okay? Then Genesis 15 verse 16 is a very interesting verse. It says, They'll come back in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Here God is explaining to Abraham why his offspring are going to be oppressed for hundreds of years, and then they're going to be brought into the promised land. God says, I'm going to use you guys as an element of my judgment on the Canaanites, or the, the Amorites were a part of the Canaanites. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What's he saying there? He's saying... I'm going to wait a little bit longer. They are evil. They deserve judgment. But I'm going to be a little bit more patient. I'm going to look for any excuse to forgive them. I'm going to look for any excuse for these Canaanites to turn back to me. And so let's just wait a bit longer. This is a God who is patient. Today we know, unfortunately, that that didn't happen, and the Canaanites were destroyed by the Israelites. But it shows us a glimpse of God's heart for the nations. It shows us a glimpse of who God is. He wants to give people a chance to repent. So did any outsider ever join into the people of God? Well, of course, the Old Testament is full of stories of non-Jewish people joining the people of God. It's a part of the theme, what we're looking at, otherwise my... Sermon wouldn't be so impressive right now. Let's have a look. In Exodus, we have this interesting verse where it says a mixed multitude went up 
with the Israelites as they left Egypt. So a bunch of Egyptians saw what God did through the plagues, and they repented and joined God's people. They were even there in the giving of the law. These non-Jewish people, these non-chosen people joined God's people. There's also the repentance of the Ninevites. The Ninevites that Jonah even tried to keep from God's grace, but he failed. And God's grace seems to have fallen on the Ninevites. Their repentance seems, seems complete. We also have individual stories like Rahab and her family, or the Moabitess Ruth, who turned to God. Over and over again, we see people coming from the outside into the fold of God. And so we're presented with a God who desires and wants the whole world to get to know him and to love him. So on Christmas morning, when these Magi come to worship Jesus, we should see them as Gentiles. We should see them for what they are, Gentiles, coming into a new relationship with God. This is huge. This is a game changer. You know why? Because I'm a Gentile. And I can now come to God. So for the Jews, the Magi is coming to worship Jesus was a sign of things to come, a sign of the fact that God was accelerating his, his salvation. He was accelerating his salvation to all people just as he always wanted to do. Paul understood this as he wrote in his letter to Timothy that God is not willing that any should perish. Sorry, that Peter wrote in his letter that God is not willing that all should perish, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then Paul wrote in Philippians that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. See all the nations being blessed by God. And this leads to to the book of, of John, of, of Revelations, where John wrote that people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will stand before the throne worshiping the Lord. This doesn't mean that just everyone's going to be saved, but what this does mean is God is going to get the glory he deserves. God is sovereign. So, question comes back to us. What are we doing in light of these promises, these promises of what's going to happen in the future. The Jews, again, the story of the Old Testament can serve as a warning. They assumed that salvation was theirs. They assumed that they were just going to be saved because they were a part of this community of God. They gave up on chasing after God. They gave up on running after him with their whole lives because they were just, they were there. And we run the same risk today of just thinking, you know what, participation credits count. As long as I just show up on Sunday, try to avoid the big sins, I'm sure God will see me and I'll be saved because I'm a part of the community. Are we going to be found before God's throne worshiping him as we see in the, in the book of Revelations? Are we going to be a part of God's people? Or are we goats in sheep's clothing? Are we hoping to just get by because we're, 
We're in the community. This is an encouragement and a warning. Be a part of the people of God, not just the culture. Okay? Chase after God's grace with everything you have. Chase after him with your whole life or risk being like the Jewish people who gave up their salvation to just hold on to their community. And finally, the protection of the promise. In Genesis 3, it also says, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So like I said, the the prophecy of Christmas meant that God needed to protect his promise. He needed to protect Eve's lineage. But this was God's work and God's alone. In his own sovereignty, he has maintained his promise. He has ensured his promise from generation to generation, beginning with Adam and Eve themselves. How so? After the sin in the garden, Adam and Eve should have been destroyed. A sin against an eternal being required an eternal punishment, and the only eternal thing that existed there was life, which means the only punishment possible was the taking of life. Charles Spurgeon said, Adam deserved death for his sin, but God in his boundless mercy spared his life. It was a demonstration of God's love and willingness to provide a way of salvation for humanity. Spurgeon is talking about God's initiation of salvation. Spurgeon is talking about how it's God who provides, who provides the payment. For God to be faithful to his justice, he required penalty payment for sin. But all we see is that God covered Adam and Eve with garments of skin. The question is whose skin? Whose skin did he use? God provided the sacrifice required for sin. There was death. The first recorded death in biblical history. Sacrifice of an animal to literally cover Adam and Eve because of their sin. When the Bible says Adam and Eve were aware of their nakedness, what it's saying is they were aware of the guilt that they were carrying. And God covers it with the sacrifice. So Satan steps up his efforts to wipe out Eve's lineage. He's in self-preservation mode. And God rescues Noah from judgment in the flood. And then he demonstrates his protection to Abraham through his preservation of Isaac. You see, when God says to Abraham, sacrifice Isaac, it makes total sense to Abraham because that's what God's did. They asked you to sacrifice your son. So Abraham goes to sacrifice his son and God protects Isaac and says, I'm not that type of God. I take care of my people. He saves Moses' life as we saw earlier when Satan was working through Pharaoh. All the while, the biblical narrative is hinting at the birth of a baby boy under the protection of God. And so when the Magi unwittingly reveal the birth of this Messiah to King Herod, the enemy tries one more time. And he tries to wipe out all the baby boys. God steps in and preserves 
the promise. There is a clear, divine, spiritual battle going on for our salvation. And it's one which we are often blissfully unaware of, happily ignorant of what's going on. But it's happening. And God is not about to let us down. He's not about to turn his back on his promises. God is going to protect us. This is why Peter could write, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There is a future promise for us, our guaranteed salvation. It's not through our own efforts, it's God who is protecting that promise. God has always protected his promises on his terms, in his effort, his work. Our sin and our failures are called back to Adam's sin. We go back to what Adam did. You see, when Adam was told that he could be like God by eating from, from the fruit, Adam thought, this is a good idea. I'm going to take what only God deserves. I'm going to take the place that only God deserves. And when we sin, we're doing the same thing. We're saying, yes, I know God deserves my whole life, but I'm getting tired of waiting, so I'm going to choose things and do things that I know should be reserved only for God. I'm going I'm to take God out of my life because I am going to take control from now on. We claim that we can fill the space that God deserves with something else. Our salvation, our guarantee of eternity is God taking the place that we deserve and getting absolutely crushed for it. Taking the punishment that we deserved. Only he can hold our salvation safe because only he earned it. Now again, we have to internalize it ourselves because the risk is that we're going to get tired we're going to get tired of holding on to faith in this world that is not supporting us. We're going to turn from the belief that God is the protector and sustainer of our faith. And slowly, we're going to try to take back credit, take back control. We're sinners. We have a nature that so desperately wants to prove how important we are to those around us. I want to prove how important I am. I want, to, I want to just earn a little bit more money, be a little bit richer, then people will know that I'm important. I want to be a little bit more popular, then people will understand that, that I'm significant. I want to be liked a little bit more. I want to be more intelligent. Then I will know that I am important. But God has shown us and promised us over and over of a guaranteed eternal love. You're important to God. 
That's why he sent his son to die on a cross. And that importance, that significance in your life is guaranteed for eternity. We will find this and so much more as we find rest in God's promises. So this morning we've looked at how the Bible was written very intentionally to display God's nature, to display his character, to display his faithfulness to us. We've seen his works in the past and his promises for the future. Jesus will come back and all people will recognize him as Lord. And we will be included in his people through our baptism, through our confession of faith. And so we submit to God and accept Christmas. We accept the work of his son on the cross. So how are you doing? How are you doing? Really? In the very most intimate parts of your heart. How are you doing? What is the state of your hope? If you take off all the masks, and you go down into who you really are, what is the state of your hope for yourself? What is the state of your hope for your family, for this world? How are you doing? Would you say that you're alive? Would you say that you're growing in your faith. You're growing in your intimacy with Jesus. Your love for others. How are you doing deep down where it really counts? If you're aggressively honest with yourself and with God, what is the state of your soul? See, because the gospel message is a message for the sick. I know I'm sick. I know I need Jesus desperately. My relationship with God needs reconciliation, and my own nature fights so hard against that. There are days when I'm so tempted with the idea of suppressing hope, of giving up on hope. There are days when I even want to give up hope in my faith because of how terrible I am as a follower of Jesus. But something Max Lucado said helps me through these times of weakness. He said, in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus faced the darkest hour of his earthly journey. He knew the weight of the world's sin would soon be upon him and the anguish he experienced was overwhelming. But in that moment of deep despair, Jesus found strength, not in his own power, but in surrendering to the will of his Father. Jesus found strength 
not in his own power, but in surrendering to the will of his Father. Let us allow Christmas to explode abruptly, rudely, unexpectedly into our lives. Because without it, our lives are drab and pointless, without meaning. And I know that there are people here this morning who need a Christmas miracle. And the good news is you don't have to wait for December. The story of the Bible is that God has been desperately trying to get hold of you from the beginning to today. God wants an encounter with you. He wants you to trust him enough to give him your sin, to repent, to turn your back on every way that you've tried to exclude him from your life and to allow him to come bursting in and be your salvation. Amen? So let's pray. Again, Father, we thank you for your revealed word. We thank you for the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the revelation of your character, the revelation of your goodness, the revelation of your love for us. We thank you that we can get to know you. And as we sit here and wait for your promises to come true, and as we encounter so many difficulties and so much resistance, and I pray, Father, that you renew our hope, that you renew our faith, and you renew our strength, that we may follow you with passion, Enjoy all the days of our lives that we may finish our race strong and be found as a part of the remnant, be found as a part of those following you, a part of the faithful in the face, in the face of despair. No matter what comes, we submit all expectations to you and we turn to you with our whole heart. Our Father, Give us your Holy Spirit to equip us to do this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.